Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Wednesday, the 5th of June. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. This morning, the podcast is extended to one hour, as in the second half of the show, I'll be talking with Dr. John Greenwood, Chief Economist at International Monetary Monitor, who's known as the father of the Hong Kong dollar peg, after an article he wrote in 1983 provided the basis for the government's policy to link the local currency to the US dollar. Before that, I'm going to discuss the latest business and finance news with Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute in Tokyo. In today's business and finance headlines, Australia's central bank held its official cash rates steady at 4.1% in a closely watched decision Tuesday. Economists were split on expectations ahead of the decision. RBA Governor Philip Lowe said in a post-meeting statement, inflation is still too high and will remain so for some time yet. South Korea's inflation rate slowed for a fifth straight month to rise 2.7% year-on-year in June. That's the lowest since October 2021. This was a slowdown from the 3.3% recorded in May. And on a monthly basis, prices were flat in June after seeing a 0.3% increase in the prior month. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that the Biden administration is preparing to restrict Chinese companies' access to U.S. cloud computing services in a move that could further strain relations between the world's economic superpowers. The new rule, if adopted, would likely require U.S. cloud service providers such as Amazon and Microsoft to seek U.S. government's permission before they provide cloud computing services to Chinese customers that use artificial intelligence chips. Facebook owner Meta is launching its new app to rival Twitter and says it will go live tomorrow. The app, which is called Threads, will be linked to Instagram. Meta describes Threads as a text-based conversation app, and it's understood that Meta Threads will be a free service, and there'll be no restrictions on how many posts a user can see. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments on the show, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. markets were closed yesterday for the Independence Day holiday. Asian markets were mixed on Tuesday. Australia's ASX 200 rose half a percent after the Reserve Bank of Australia left interest rates on hold. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 retreated from a new 33-year high recorded on Monday, falling 1%. South Korea's Cosby fell 0.4%. In India, both the BSE Sensex and the NSE Nifty 50 closed at record highs for the fourth straight session. The Nifty 50 ended the day with gains of a third of a percent, taking its rally for the year to over 7%. Chinese markets were higher. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index climbed 109 points, or 0.6%, to 19,416, led by energy and industrial stocks. The Hang Seng Tech Index rose half a percent. It was hobbled by sense time, which tumbled 8.7%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite edged up just one point to 3,245. Shares of Chinese germanium producers soared on Tuesday after China restricted the exports of two key metals to the manufacturing of semiconductors. Yunnan Linkan Jinwan germanium surged by the 10% limit in Shenzhen, while Yunnan Qihong zinc and germanium paired early gains of 10% but was still over 6% higher in Shanghai. 
Futures markets are pointing lower this morning for Hong Kong and Japanese markets at the open. The Hang Seng is expected to fall around 70 points. That's a third of a percent when trading gets going this morning. In the oil markets, Brent crude oil added 1.5% to trade at $76.12 per barrel after Saudi Arabia and Russia said they would extend or make voluntary cuts to output in August. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests on this Wednesday morning. We have with us Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning, Mark. Uh, good morning, Peter. Good morning, John. And over in Tokyo. Good morning, Mark. We have John Byrne, who's Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank of Institutes. Morning, John. Morning, Peter. Hi, Mark. Let's start having a look at some of the central banks around the region. First of all, in Australia, the Reserve Bank of Australia left its official cash rate steady at 4.1% in a closely watched decision Tuesday. Economists were split on expectations ahead of the decision, with 16 out of 31 respondents surveyed by Reuters forecasting a hike of 25 basis points and 15 expecting the central bank to hold. RBA Governor Philip Lowe said in a post-meeting statement, inflation is still too high and will remain so for some time yet. So Mark and John, not really much comfort there, was it? It was quite a, a, a hawkish pause after two surprise increases in the last meetings. But it sounds like uh, the RBA is still not comfortable, still going to see some more interest rate rises in Australia. Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're worried about, and Australia is worried about inflation. So I think uh, you know, hikes are possible, easing is unlikely, and this is going to continue at least for a little while. It looks, looks like that at this point. Yeah, what, what I would say is that, you know, there's still significant uncertainty ahead. Uh, I think, um, you know, many central banks in the region are still worried about the hard landing scenario. And that may explain why we have seen a pause at the current juncture in Australia and, and some other uh, central banks as well. So although inflation remains a concern, tightening rates further is also a significant worry. So what would be the worst policy mistake then out of the two? They, they don't raise rates and then inflation takes off again and, and has another surge or they do raise rates and, and drive the economy into a recession. What, what, what would be the worst? Well, from my perspective, I think, um, you know, the big concern for central banks at the moment is credibility. Mm. Um, so I think that if we look at the ECB, the Fed and, and the major uh, advanced economy central banks, th- this has been a concern recently um, with some mixed um, you know, views on, on whether rates should continue to tighten uh, given, the, given the inflation outlook and, and the recession scenario. Um, I think that um, you know, central banks, they don't want to... Um, you know, cause a, a hard landing in the economy, of course. Um, but at the same time, they want to maintain credibility as regards their uh, price stability mandate. Um, of course, the, the purpose of, uh, you know, tightening rates is to achieve a sustainable level of inflation over the medium term and to anchor inflation expectations, not to trigger a hard landing. So, I think um, they're exercising some caution at the moment to, to find some, some balance, but it's very difficult, of course. And Australia, of course, yeah, has been under pressure, hasn't it, because over the credibility, because people have been criticising it for being too late in raising rates. Yeah, and bal- that's the problem. It's become very political. 
not only in Australia, but you think in, in the U.S., it's part of the presidential campaign now, real pressure on not to raise rates from some of the uh, presidential candidates who don't seem as worried about inflation, although they use it as a major campaign issue. So it's very confusing. And, and as John said, it's credibility that really is important for everyone concerned, not only central banks, I think. The problem is for Australia and, and most of the other central banks around the world, meeting their inflation mandate is also dependent upon the job markets, isn't it? Because most job markets seem very tight, despite slowing economies, despite rising inflation. Workers have seen their real wages decline over the past few years. So they're almost like demanding payback now. Then they're not going to um, come out of sort of semi-retirement or whatever it is they're doing, unless they get better wages. That seems to be the problem, doesn't it? They're, they're, there's this expect, expectation now that because inflation is higher, wages are going to have to go up as well. We've just, we just did a, a session on return to work, a managing return to work. And that was exactly one of the issues, especially among the younger, the younger staff members, younger employees who, uh, who feel that they want more, more better work-life balance, but also higher salaries, at least recognition of what what they do, and the pressure is strong, and uh, companies have to try to balance that because they need they need the people. But at the same time, um, they've got to try to make money as well. Exactly, I fully agree. I think that the jobs market data is is crucial in terms of understanding um, interest rate decisions and monetary policy uh, decisions by central banks. But I think that you know. That's why it's really crucial to anchor inflation expectations, because that is really the, the target that central banks are looking at. You know, we're not talking about inflation now. We're talking about inflation over the horizon, over the medium term horizon. And it's important to anchor that. And that will um, feed into discussions about wages. So, as I said earlier, the issue of credibility is crucially important at this juncture, um, particularly this year. Many central banks are, of course, moving towards their... Uh, inflation target uh, slowly, you know, by the end of 2024, they're talking about um, getting closer to that 2% into 2020 for many of the central banks. But it would be important for credibility um, in that uh, assessment to be, you know, transmitted to the to the wider economy. And that will feed into wage negotiations. And, and, and that's the, the challenge that all central banks are facing at the moment, some more than others, of course. There has been talk, hasn't there, in some places about actually central banks having to think again about this 2% inflation target that maybe it's going to be so tough to achieve without causing some grave pain to the economy that maybe um, we've got to live with higher inflation. What, what do you think about that? Do you think that's a good idea do you th or do you think that's uh, something that's going to be uh, pretty disastrous for the economy? Well, maybe I could say yeah. that I, I think that um, there's nothing scientific about the 2% level, of course. Um, this was something that was introduced, I think, by New Zealand many, many years ago, at the start of the 90s or something like that. And, you know, I think this is a, a level which has been communicated very clearly to to the public and so on. And it's, um, it's I think it would be difficult to just change the target because it would create some confusion amongst uh, markets and it would also possibly detrimentally affect inflation expectations over the over the horizon because of course all central banks that are inflation targeters are essentially tied into this two percent 
target and it would require a, a large degree of uh, coordination across the globe to change i mean i don't think it would be good for different targets to be in place in different central banks all over the world i think it would be difficult communication mm-hmm. yeah it's become a mantra right uh, the the two percent for a lot of banks but as has been pointed out by several analysts by several people who suffer, there's a lot of difference between 2% and 4% inflation for people on the ground. And they and they feel it pretty uh, mm. pretty strongly. And you've seen numbers along those. And obviously, politically, that doesn't play very well either. So again, a, a tough balance. And again, as John said, credibility is a good part of it. And actually, most of the decision makers don't have much, uh, much around the world at this point. I don't think people realise just over um, a fairly short period of time just what a difference um, to their purchasing power inflation of 2% means compared to 4%. If you put it into a spreadsheet, if you had 2% inflation every year for the next 10 years, your purchasing power will be reduced by 22%. If it was 4% every year for the next 10 years, your purchasing power will be reduced by 48%, almost halved. That's quite a substantial difference, isn't it? And I'm not sure people realize that that is a cost they would have to pay. It makes a difference. But I think even if people don't realize the exact numbers, they feel it, right, to some extent mm. or another. Mm. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a couple of specific banks and central banks in the region where they all fit in with this. First of all, in uh, in Japan, Tokyo inflation data that came out uh, last week, 3.1% year on year in June. So it's above the Bank of Japan's target. So where does the Bank of Japan fit in the credibility stakes at the moment? Yes, well, I mean, inflation has been above target in Japan for uh, quite some time now. As you said, 3.1% year on year. Um, and, and that's the headline rate. There's also some uh, pressure on, on the core, the underlying rate, which is also above target. Um, there are still um, large degrees of uncertainty on whether this level of inflation is sustainable. Um, so over the, over the medium term horizon, it's still the consensus that um, you know, inflation expectations are around the 2% level. And that's why there has been no change in monetary policy in Japan. Um, of course, related to that is going to be close monitoring of wage developments in Japan, um, particularly the extent to which small and medium-sized enterprises will increase wages um, and have the capacity to do so. And that may trigger some um, inflationary pressure um, over the over the course of the next 12 months. But at the moment, um, it still remains the case that even though we see this 3.1%, above 2%, of course, targets, um, monetary policy is not um, expected to change. And what about up in uh, the mainland? The PBOC, it's got a new uh, new party uh, Communist Party chief, Pan Gongshen, has been appointed to the role of Communist Party chief at the bank. He's replacing Guo Shuqing, and he's also going to be in line for the next governor. What, what does this mean? Is this China really sending out a signal that it wants stability? Because it's, it's got someone there who's got quite a lot of experience in, in commercial banking. Is that the number one aim here? I think it's part of it for sure. And also his international experience, right? He's he studied at international university. He knows um, the international community, uh, like his, like the current governor of the 
PBOC, and therefore would, I think, send a little bit more confidence in the market. That's a really important position, uh, not only for China, but I think for uh, for the rest of the world as well. Yeah, exactly. I think at the start of this year, there was um, a lot of talk globally that, you know, the reopening of China would stimulate a huge boost to global growth. But of course, that has uh, tapered off a little bit in recent months. Um, there's been also talk about um, the impact of uh, monetary easing in China not having the desired effect. But I don't think there's a great surprise there um, in my perspective, because, you know, the pass through of interest rate uh, decisions to, to the wider economy will will take some time. Um, so we're not going to see, um, you know, rapid responses in, in the real economy for some time in China it's only just opened up. So I think um, that needs to be borne in mind. And that would be one of the challenges faced by the new governor, the, the new chief of the PBOC, um, to really, um, you know, get the economy back on track in terms of the transmission of monetary policy to the to the real economy. Now, Richard Koo, who's chief economist at the Namur Research Institute, he says um, China's in a balance sheet recession. He was the one who first used that phrase, invented that phrase, uh, to describe Japan, actually, back in the 1990s, when it sort of descended uh, into stagnation. Basically, a balance sheet recession occurs when households and businesses divert more of their income towards paying down debt rather than consuming or investing. So what's the solution to that? Well, I think that, um, yeah, whether it's in a balance sheet recession or not, it's difficult to really, uh, you know, say for sure. I mean, it would involve really looking closely at the data. But what is clear is that consumption has not kicked off um, as a result of the monetary easing that we've seen in recent months, nor investment, despite expectations to that effect um, at the start of the year. Um, So what would be the solution, you know, Economies are sorry, um, households and firms in China have, um, you know, significant debt repayment obligations. So this is just um, something that needs to be, um, you know, dealt with. Um, Of course, the the economy uh, in terms of uh, policy decisions can can help with that um, on the monetary policy side, as well as on the fiscal policy side. But I think that, you know, in order to, um, you know, avert this balance sheet recession scenario, um, you know, it would be important for monetary policy transmission to be improved. I think that would be very important in in the current context. And as I said, in the case of China, it's just coming out of this uh, period of lockdown. So it's still in a transition phase, I think, in terms of uh, re-entering the global economy in a a sort of more fluid manner. Yeah, I think there's another example of long COVID. Again, not the medical side so much, but the, but the economic side. And, and of course, I remember Richard Koo uh, with his balance sheet recession around 1990 or so about Japan. Uh, he's mentioned fiscal policy, fiscal stimulus as being part of it. But he also has said, and I don't know if this even works, but the government providing households and businesses with some income that they can help repair their business balance sheets and give them enough confidence to start borrowing again. Obviously, something has to happen along these lines. I think easier said than done, but it's going to be an issue going forward for for quite a while, I think. Let me ask you finally about one other 
um, quasi-central bank in the region. Here in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, of course, um, we have no choice. We're, we're pegged to the, uh, to the US dollar, so therefore we import uh, the US's monetary policy. Is that sustainable, do you think? Because it's putting more strain, isn't it, on the Hong Kong economy at the moment. We don't really need uh, these high sort of interest rates at 5%. And if they go up even higher, closer to 6%, isn't that going to cause some problems for the Hong Kong economy? Certainly, I think it's it's a big problem. Um, you know, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority has been purchasing uh, domestic currency in order to maintain the, the peg, of course. And, uh, you know, w- whether this is a sustainable s- situation is, you know, something that's very difficult to assess. I think it's obviously not something that can carry on over the longer term because markets would intervene um, and, you know, engage in further carry trade type positions, which would, um, you know, really test the credibility of that peg severely. I think that, you know, in the case of Hong Kong um, and other economies, I must say, every everything is really driven by what's happening in the US. The strong dollar over the course of the past year has been impacting some economies more than others. And in the case of Hong Kong, of course, it's uh, much more stringent because of the, the, the peg that's in place, the, the currency board. Um, so, I think that um, it will be difficult to maintain that in my perspective. But on the other hand, you know, should the peg break, it would also have significant uh, detrimental uh, consequences in terms of capital outflows, for example, and, and things of that nature. Look, it can always it can always break. And this has been an issue for a long time. I had John Greenwood, who you're going to have on in a few minutes, and, and Mark Faber, Dr. Dumont, around in the mid 1980s talking about the same issue in many ways the peg has worked pretty well it may not work forever but it's come through global economic and financial shocks and uh with with being able to have some credibility it's political as well as economic so our high interest rates and and economic volatility is it a price we need to pay for international confidence and eliminating uh, foreign exchange risk in Hong Kong. And can that continue? I think it is for now. And it certainly, certainly if it was changed, it would affect uh, the internationalization of the yuan and, and other issues as well. So I suspect that's here for a while. I may be wrong. I may be proved wrong. But I think it's, it still performs the, uh, the functions that it was intended to perform when John Greenwood first wrote that article in 1983. Well, we'll hear yeah, from him. I, I fully agree with you, Mark. I would, I would say, though, um, you know, what's specific to the current environment is the strength of the dollar. So, yeah. you know, if we go back, let's say, 40 years, for example. So we had the plaza when the dollar was just just before the plaza accord, when the dollar was at its highest level. We did not see a strength in the dollar from that period until the period right before 9-11. And now we're at the highest level since the period right before 9-11. So there are only three episodes of this extreme level of dollar strength. And this is the exact type of test which would which would be um, problematic in the, in the case of a, a peg to the dollar. And that's why we're seeing the problems at the moment. So if the dollar would depreciate, for example, if inflationary pressure would dissipate in the U.S. and the dollar would start to come down, then we would see some easing in this uh, pressure on Hong Kong as regards the peg. But... You know, as we are aware, uh, inflation is remaining sticky in the U.S. And that's why, you know, the outlook is still in 
for a monetary policy tightening stance at, at the global level. And, and, you know, it's it's very uncertain as as to whether this dollar strength will dissipate in the near future. Yeah, I agree. This is a this is a new challenge. I just think at this point, and again, it could change very quickly, alternatives are are, are less attractive. Well, we're going to hear very shortly from John Greenwood, who is the the father of the Hong Kong dollar peg. He was the one who wrote that article back in 1983 that led to the currency board being established. We'll get his thoughts on what the future is um, for the Hong Kong dollar peg in the show very shortly. Before that, let's move on and talk about some of these trade issues. China's restricting exports of products and materials containing gallium and germanium from metals that are vital in semiconductors, 5G base stations and solar panels, I suspect. Mark, your members must be tearing their hair out at uh, more and more restrictions, tit-for-tat restrictions. Presumably, this is retaliation for the US and also its allies because this affects Holland, it affects Japan, have also put restrictions on exports of uh, semiconductors and manufacturing equipment to China. There are a lot of contradictions, aren't there, which is a phrase that, that's, that, that's often used. And here, Secretary, Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen's uh, arriving in, in Beijing tomorrow to try to deal with a lot of these issues. And she's coming at a time when certainly it's very important to talk about about trade, about some of the issues you just raised, but the situation seems to be getting a little bit worse. You mentioned the China, the China moves. The U.S. is about to, it looks like, put more restrictions also on, on trade and semiconductors and, and cloud computing and so on. And the U.S. is trying to, trying to, uh, uh, ease the restrictions on Micron and other U.S. companies that are involved in this business. It's a very mixed up situation. I just hope, we all hope, that uh, Secretary Yellen's visit and then perhaps subsequent visits by uh, maybe the Secretary of Commerce and others may help at least move us to a, a more steady state, if not solve these problems. But with this volatility going on with this tit for tat, it makes it much more difficult, I think. Yes, I fully agree. And I think that, you know, there are also what you could term as innocent bystanders to these types of uh, restrictions between one one economy and another. So trading partners to, to China and the U.S. will also be affected um, negatively as a result of this. And, you know, there are classic problems with um, the impacts of uh, trade frictions abroad, and it, it leads to inefficiencies in, in supply chains and you know, also inefficiencies in pricing. Um, so uh, hopefully, you know, th- these factors will be ironed out. And, you know, we need to move to more uh, sort of a, an order in terms of um, trade and, and re- removing these types of restrictions over the over the medium term, at least. The, these... Other than that, no worries, Peter. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was gonna. I was gonna say just to put this in perspective, China is the world's largest producer of the two elements. More than ninety-five percent of the global gallium output and sixty-seven percent of germanium production comes from China. The only thing I would add to that, though, is that although China is the world's largest miner of these two elements. It's nowhere near that in terms of processing it. In fact, Japan, doesn't it, has a big part to say in the processing of, um, of gallium and germanium. So I presume this, uh, this impacts Japan as well. Yes, as I sort of alluded to, it affects many economies. But, and in this case, it affects Japan, of course. Um, but I think, you know, more broadly, it's important to um, have a, a well-diversified um, sort of a system of, of global value chains and actually, it's something that we have 
well, hopefully that we are learning from from the from the episode last year and the pandemic, of course, is to to make our supply chains in the Asian region and even globally much more diversified. So we're not impacted so much on a specific shock in a specific country. Um, I think that's very important. And it's one of the um, aspects that the G7 and the G20 are trying to push forward, um, you know, called de-risking, let's say. Um, so in order to diversify supply in energy, supply in the supply of different raw materials um, that are necessary for production of, you know, any type of uh, manufactured output. Um, so I think, yeah, many many economies are affected by this, of course, but de-risking would be would be the important aspect here and diversification al along the supply chain. This is one of the this is one of the top subjects of every conversation we have among executives. Obviously, they're all trying to do that, almost all. And but the problem is with mixed success. As you try to move part of it to Southeast Asia or to Mexico or to Eastern Europe, you can make some progress. But China has certain advantages that are difficult to uh, replicate in some places. And over time, that'll happen. But in the short term, especially for some companies, it's it's become very difficult to do uh, in practice. Presumably, this is a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because if China does go ahead with this, of course, it will drive up prices for those metals. So then it makes yeah. it more feasible for other countries to also mine because it, these can be mined in other countries like the US. They just choose not to do it um, at the moment. So presumably, it will prompt other countries like the US to start up their own uh, mining facilities for these types of metals and diversify away from China. It will just, um, it will just accelerate that process of de-risking, won't it? Yes, absolutely. And it will also affect the pricing as well, because it would increase the supply. Um, so I think, you know, if one is interested in having a well-diversified supply chain and making your economy less vulnerable to specific shocks, then th this would be uh, a good outcome, I would say. The, the issue, uh, just to finally, one of the issues is that, you know, you think of the U.S. trying to do this, and of course, they're trying to do this in many ways, but so is China, as, as the restrictions come on China, and China obviously has, has the wherewithal to be able to do this more quickly and more effectively than many other uh, other nations around the world, and so that might be a problem as well as as, as countries try to move in that direction. Well, thank you both very much. Very interesting discussion this morning. We'd love to carry on longer. That was Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and John Byrne, who's vice chair of research at the Asian Development Bank Institute over in Tokyo. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk, and I'm pleased to welcome now to the show Dr. John Greenwood, Chief Economist at International Monetary Monitor, who is known as the father of the Hong Kong dollar peg after an article he wrote in 1983 provided the basis for the government's policy to link the local currency to the US dollar. He still sits on the HKMA Currency Board subcommittee, which monitors and reports on the linked exchange rate system that pegs the Hong Kong dollar against the US dollar between a range of 7.75 to 7.85. Good morning, Dr. Greenwood, and thanks for joining me this morning. Good morning. It's good to be here. 
Thank you. It's hard to believe, isn't it, 40 years ago now that you first wrote that uh, paper where you envisaged a currency board system for Hong Kong. And, and the arrangement that you described at the time, it was designed to stand the test of time and provide stability for Hong Kong through all sorts of tests and upheavals. Did you really imagine that uh, that time it would still be intact 40 years later, almost exactly as you proposed it? Well, it has been strengthened to a good degree in the interim. So several measures have been taken to strengthen it. But yes, I did envisage that it would last a long time. And I was criticised quite a lot at the time because at the time most countries had moved towards floating and moving towards a fix was completely contrary to the trends in the world at the time. And um, so I, I got a fair amount of criticism, but my conviction came from the fact that Basically, the system is is, base, is based on a, an idea like the gold standard. Mm. That is, that if you fix the price of the currency as opposed to the deposits in a, in a banking system uh, <clears throat> to the price of gold, that will you know there's there's no reason why that shouldn't last for many many decades. And that the gold standard, the silver standard that Hong Kong had had, indeed did last for many many decades. And all we're doing, um, all we did in 1983, was to use the US dollar instead of silver. So is it 40 years later, is it time to make some changes to the system now? Or is it still working just as well as it was, just as relevant as it was 40 years ago? Um, I don't think it's time to make any major changes. Um, people forget that it was introduced <clears throat> not for political reasons. Remember, it was a time when Britain was negotiating with China over the future of Hong mm. Kong. Margaret Thatcher had been to China. That was followed by a capital outflow from Hong Kong and so on. And people thought, well, this is a political solution. Once all that's solved, you know, um, we can go back to normal. But actually, there was a fundamental economic flaw, financial flaw, if you like, at the heart of the system. Um, at the time, the Hong Kong government, or there was, there was no Hong Kong Monetary Authority, and the monetary agency within the finance branch was not able to control either the quantity of money in Hong Kong or the price. Now, you have to do one of those two things mm. to have a stable system. And essentially, fixing the price solved that problem. It's brought a stability to, if you like, the price of the price of money. I mean, many people decried at the time when Britain and the United States moved off the gold gold standard. They saw that as a, a step backwards. So we've had this stability um, here, but but our economic circumstances have changed very considerably, haven't they, since 1983? And and some people say that having a peg to the US dollar is holding back now um, Hong Kong's economy because we're effectively importing US monetary policy that isn't appropriate anymore for Hong Kong uh, to today in 2023. What what do you say to that? Well, I say that the really important thing is that Hong Kong's economic activity is driven by global economic activity, not just by China. <clears throat> and since it is still the US, which is the dominant force in driving global economic activity, uh, it's perfectly satisfactory to be pegged to the US dollar. In fact, better because in many respects, uh, because the US dollar 
is such an important uh, currency for trade transactions, for investment transactions, uh, and of course it's held very widely as an international reserve currency. Mm. So for all those reasons, you know, um, the, the system as it's set up uh, is, is very suitable for Hong Kong, which wants to be an international financial center, if you like, a kind of representative of the New York money markets in Asia. So do, do we have to start thinking about, though, the economic costs of the peg? Because we've got U.S. interest rates at 5%. Um, they could go up to 6%, maybe, heaven forbid, even even higher. It's quite possible, which could do a lot of damage to the local property markets, to Hong Kong's economy, to uh, the stock market. Do, do we have to look and say we also need to take into account now there are economic costs to, to having the peg and having that discussion? Well, it's a matter of alternatives, really. I mean, if the if if you didn't have the peg, uh, the question is what what you what what would you replace it with? Um, pegging to another currency might seem to be a solution, uh, but again, it's better to be pegged to the currency that is the dominant um, currency for global transactions, uh, and you know, certainly all the developed economies and prior to that, the emerging economies, most of them have seen interest rates rise. China, in that, in that sense, is a bit of an exception currently. Um, so pegging to the US dollar is still an appropriate uh, thing to do for Hong Kong. It's certainly not appropriate to go back to a floating exchange rate, which would make Hong Kong very vulnerable in any political uh, crisis. Um, and pegging to other currencies probably wouldn't make a great deal of difference, I don't think. Um, so it's probably best to choose the dollar. What about pegging to the yuan? Or some people say mm. not um, having a currency at all, adopting the yuan at some point altogether instead of Hong Kong having its own currency. <laughs> well, let's take those in order. Um, pegging to the yuan itself um, is feasible, technically feasible, but it the problem with the yuan is that, it, as everybody knows, it's subject to foreign exchange control, capital mm -hmm. controls. Mm -hmm. And what that means for Hong Kong is that the automatic adjustment mechanism wouldn't work as well. Now, by that, I mean the ability to arbitrage not just money market rates, but prices of goods and services and property and so on. All of those things continuously adjust to the prices of similar things in the current currency to which the Hong Kong dollar is pegged. Mm. And if there is if there is a barrier there due to foreign exchange controls or capital controls, then that's not going to work so well. Mm. It it's technically it's something you can overcome, but it's 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 not ideal. <clears throat> the second part of your question is, you know, what about adopting um, the renminbi instead of the Hong Kong dollar? Well, there's a couple of objections to that. One is that, first of all, the basic law says that the currency of Hong Kong shall be the Hong Kong dollar. Mm. Uh, so you know, unless Beijing and the Hong Kong authorities are prepared to ride rough, roughshod over, I think it's Article 111 uh, of the basic law, then we're going to have the Hong Kong dollar certainly up until 2047. The, 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 the second thing um, about it is that um, the... If you adopt the yuan, you can't really have a yuan that is subject to different regulations operating in Hong Kong from what's happening in the mainland. Mm. 
and that would create a major leakage out of China, and they would not favour that, I don't mm -hmm. think. But the, the peg isn't going to break or be forced to break because of the way that it's designed. It's you know it's not a, it's not a traditional peg. It's a currency board and it, it operates very well um, by by sort of ironing out the fluctuations. But presumably at some point, Hong Kong and China um, are going to have to consider voluntarily moving towards a, a yuan-based system. And maybe at some point in the future, who knows, it may not be that far away, to start thinking about what are the circumstances under which that could happen and how it would happen. Do you see that as almost being an inevitable discussion now? Um, not really. Um, you're right that the currency board mechanism is the strongest form of fixed exchange rate in the world today. Mm. No currency board that is a genuine currency board, has ever been broken. Now, people cite Argentina, but that wasn't a currency board, and they broke all the rules. So that's not a relevant uh, comparator, or not, not a relevant currency to compare with. Um, the, 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 the broader point, I suppose, is that um, if you have a... Uh, a well, the, that, that there are distinct advantages both to China and to Hong Kong, in having a currency which is open to the world and accessible uh, to the world. Uh, obviously, also for Hong Kong people, they are free from foreign exchange controls and businesses here can freely mm. transact in any currency of the world they like from Hong Kong. Now, those are positive advantages which do not, do not occur currently in China. So unless you're going to sort of ditch the one country, two systems idea, and the Hong Kong dollar along with it, which would mean that Hong Kong would effectively be part of China in terms of its economic uh, rules and regulations, mm. then I, I really don't think that adoption of the yuan is a good idea. The, the one thing that maybe is different, I'm wondering, this time mm. from, from previous periods, where we have seen some stress, but the currency board nevertheless has worked uh, as it should, is the strength of the US dollar. We're in this period now where the US dollar is very strong, and as long as US interest rates are going to keep on moving up, it could carry on uh, this sort of strength and getting, and getting stronger as well. That, that's sort of putting some strains now, isn't it, on the, uh, on the, on the peg and the, and the currency board? It doesn't put strains on the on the peg itself or on the currency board mechanism. The currency board mechanism will operate no matter what the level uh, of the US dollar and no matter what the level of the Hong Kong dollar is relative to the US dollar. As long as there's, there are ample reserves um, and uh, the convertibility undertakings, those 775, 785 limits, uh, as soon as they are reached, provided that the authority has the ability to either provide Hong Kong dollars or withdraw Hong Kong dollars on demand from the market. And right. that's, that's a key point to stress. It's not the Hong Kong Monetary Authority intervening so much as the banks going to the HKMA when the, when the market rate exceeds those limits. So let, me, let me just mm. illustrate that. So when the... When, if the rate was on the weak side and it fell to, say, 786, at that point, it would be cheaper for banks on behalf of their customers to buy U.S. dollars at 785 from the authority rather than in the market at 786. Mm. So the demand is coming from the banks on behalf of their customers. It's not the, the HKMA sort of stepping in uh, 
technically, you could say they're, they're one and the same thing, but I, I, I want to make that point. So, and what that stresses or that emphasizes is that there is no stress or strain. There's always the ability to fulfill that, those convertibility undertakings at the 775, 785 uh, ranges. Are the, are the tensions between the US and China um, going to become a factor in this? We've got seeing export controls, we're seeing more and more mm. sanctions by both sides, which is sort of restricting trade, disrupting supply chains. There is a worry, and the IMF and the World Bank have both expressed that worry, that the global economy is going to fragment, uh, fragment into sort of two mm. competing economic and, and trading blocks. If that happens, Hong Kong is going to be put in quite a vulnerable position, isn't it? Because we've got an economy that's obviously dependent upon mainland China in many ways, but a monetary policy that's tied to the US. And then in the extreme, Hong Kong could be held hostage to financial sanctions from, from the US um, and the West. Could the, could the peg survive that type of extreme scenario? Uh, the peg could survive, but it would be very bad for the Hong Kong economy. Um, we have had that kind of scenario or even more than a scenario suggestion um, before during the Trump administration mm. there was a threat uh, that Hong Kong might be subject to uh, you know exclusion from swift uh, mm. uh, exchanges uh, between banks um, that's the messaging system which is used for to, to under, underpin um, uh, global foreign exchange markets. So it's not unknown, um, but th the, the damage that would be done would be especially to all foreign banks operating here. So, so it wouldn't just catch Chinese banks in Hong Kong or Hong Kong-based banks, of mm. which there are only a few now, but the, the, um, all the American banks, the uh, European banks... Um, the Middle Eastern banks and so on that all operate here would all uh, lose out. So I, I think it's unlikely. So in that particular case, during the Trump administration, it was argued that there would be too much damage and loss to American interests. Uh, and so the, the proposal was shelved. Mm. One of the things that's changing very much for the, the global economy is we're now living in, um, well, certainly in the Western part of the world, high inflation uh, economies, inflation at rates that we haven't seen maybe in, in four decades, certainly mm. in the mm. UK, in Europe, in, uh, in the US, not so much out here in, in the mainland. So we've got to get uh, used to this era of low for long is, is over for now. It's, it's really changed, hasn't it, the way in which um, our economy is working. But how did we end up in this position? Where well, let, let me don't exaggerate the position. This is an episode of inflation. We are not entering an era of higher inflation. So you don't think this is a lasting change no. of, of higher inflation no. for a long period of time? On the contrary, we, we have high inflation only because major central banks around the world made mistakes during the COVID period. They engaged in very aggressive QE operations, which increased the quantity of money very rapidly. In the US, the UK, the Eurozone, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and a number of other countries. But some did not do that. China didn't do it, Switzerland didn't, didn't do it. But the Inflation from that increase in the stock of money is now coming to an end and um, monetary policies have been tightened so aggressively 
that in some countries like the US, the, the amount of money, the, the quantity of money is falling, which means that the risk now is not of inflation but of deflation. So I think that US inflation will come down, well, it's already come down quite sharply, and next year and the year after, you know, there's a significant risk, not only that we have zero inflation, but it could even go negative. So uh, don't exaggerate. We're not in a permanently higher um, inflation era. I mean, Japan is a good illustration of that. Um, Japan, for the first time in 30 years, has an inflation rate of more than their target mm. of 2%. Mm. But again, that's only because of what they did during the COVID period. In that case, it was lending to the banks, not, not QQE or YCC. Um, but that is now over. And money growth, which is what really matters, has returned to a rate which is below what it was during the COVID period. It was, it's comparable with what it was pre-COVID. In other words, Japan is most likely to go back to a low inflation, low interest rate uh, environment, just as it was pre-COVID. So what you're really saying is that these central banks, they, they've actually got on top of inflation. We're going to see inflation coming down and therefore you, you, you would say as well as that interest rates have peaked and interest rates are going to start to come down as well. Uh, I wouldn't give them too much credit for that. They <laughs> created the inflation in the first place. Mm -hmm. and by, most, by not focusing on money supply. Correct. And, and they've sought to deflect the blame onto all these what they call accidents, you know, um, these um, sort of unforeseen events like um, chip shortages or energy prices going up or the invasion of Ukraine causing food and fertilizer shortages and so on. I mean, anything they can to defer the blame. But the reality is that inflation comes only from an excess quantity of money and it's the central banks that created that, mostly by doing QE. So presumably that's why then in places like China, which didn't engage in QE, didn't provide handouts for uh, for households and consumers, that's why their inflation is virtually zero compared to uh, what we're seeing in places like the UK and the US. It's linked to whether or not how they responded to COVID and, and the type of QE, whether or not they engaged in that. Because that's what seems to be the main differential, doesn't mm. it, between, say, Japan and China yes, um, and but, the West. Yes, but you've got to be careful. You said handouts, uh, not, not just QE, but also you said handouts to families and firms. Mm. That could have been done by borrowing in the markets. That, that was not necessarily um, inflationary. So the, the US fiscal policy, uh, the U UK fiscal policy was very generous and it increased government debt substantially. But most of that w was borrowed in the markets. There was, uh, there was a separate decision by the independent central banks to create money. That's the important uh, part of the inflation story. Um, the fiscal part is, is far less important. But the, isn't the problem now, though, that having done that, one of the issues is real wages for workers have fallen quite substantially during this inflation episode. So would you not expect that those wage earners are going to want to try and catch up, at least while the labour markets are very tight? So that's going to create um, a sort of a, a permanently higher expectation of, um, of inflation. No, it's perfectly legitimate for people to want to replace lost real wages. That is, you know, because their prices have gone up, their, 
their real wages um, have weakened. So um, they can demand higher wages, and you would expect them to. Mm. But who's going to pay that? The firms have got to pay that in the most, for the most part, and the firms won't have the money if money is being squeezed. So um, pushing for higher wages is not self-sustaining. Unless the money is there, the, the higher wages can't be paid, and the expectations on their own don't create higher inflation. It's You've a, got to have faster money growth to support higher inflation. It's a sort of spiral, though, isn't it? The, the, the companies then will pass on those higher costs to consumers, of course, also the workers um, uh, as well. So it, it sort of becomes a self-reinforcing uh, philosophy? No, they won't. As I said, a number of countries, notably the US and the UK, now have negative rates of money growth. And, mm. and also the, um, the, the, uh, the, the euro area. And that means that spending will be uh, curtailed. Revenue growth will de- gradually decline and may even weaken, uh, may, may even go into negative territory. Uh, profits will decline, and therefore the firms won't have the ability to pay those higher wages. Mm. Um, so we are much more likely, in my view, to see uh, layoffs an increase in the unemployment rate uh, rather than a continuation of the spir- of what is called a wage-price spiral. But in reality, a wage-price spiral is only feasible when the central bank and the banks together are printing, creating a lot of money. The, the extreme where it seems to have gone horribly wrong is, is probably the UK, isn't it? Where now it's interesting that you know, policymakers are almost blaming each other. The government and the Bank of England are, are squabbling over who's responsible for this. Banks are being blamed. Supermarkets uh, are being blamed. There seems to be a big blame game going on now as to why has this happened and, and as consumers and workers start to realise just what the cost is to them of this high inflation. Well, as I said earlier, you know, the inflation was created by the central banks. And in the UK case, it was created in Threadneedle Street. And Andrew Bailey and his Monetary Policy Committee have done everything they can to try to defer the, you know, deflect the blame elsewhere. Um, and you're right. You know, there is this blame game going on. But the reason why the UK uh, inflation rate seems to be a bit more sticky is, first of all, the government has intervened in the energy market in a way which has slowed up the increase of, of energy prices but is now holding them higher than they would otherwise be, number one. And number two, um, by squeezing the public sector over the past decade, um, they're now facing an avalanche of demands for catch-up. Uh, and it's, it's, prom- it's mainly private, uh, sorry, public sector wage demands um, that are fueling this concern among politicians. But again, you know, it's not going to inf- um, uh, exacerbate the inflation rate unless the Bank of England accommodates higher prices with more money. And currently that is not happening. Can central banks reach their 2% inflation targets or do you think there's going to have to be some discussion about revising those targets because there has been some talk already, hasn't there, in the US about whether this 2% inflation target is still appropriate? What, what do you think about that? Do you think they can be reached and if not, do they, do they need to think about revising those targets upwards? Uh, yes, they, yes, they can be reached. Most of the last decade pre-COVID, um, from 2010 to 2019, 
uh, the U.S. was very successful in steering a course that produced almost exactly 2% on average uh, consumer price increases. And as I've said, U.S. money growth has slowed very dramatically from the COVID days, uh, and the risk at the moment is that they will undershoot the 2% target. And the same is true for other countries. Now, of course, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Um, It takes about two years for changes in money growth to feed through to inflation. And most politicians and um, financial commentators are too impatient to wait that length of time Mm. for those effects to come through. But come through, they will. Um, And uh, as I say, at the moment, uh, the signs are with these very low rates of money growth because of the abrupt rise in rates, that if anything, we're more likely to undershoot the 2% rather than to overshoot it. But 2% is perfectly feasible and I think is a, is a probably a reasonable rate. The reason it was set at 2% in, the, in most cases is that central banks wanted, in, in the event of a recession, to have some margin for cutting rates. Uh, because if, if, if the target was set at zero, then interest rates generally would be rather lower and they wouldn't have room to cut if a uh, recession came along. It's interesting what you say, because there's there's quite a clear divide between what you are saying and what the solution is to this, to, to maybe what some other people are saying, and even organisations like the IMF, who are talking about a world now of structurally higher inflation, and, and in particular because... Um, the retirement of the baby boomers means, you know, you've got a um, labour is able to press its claims, if you like, on on national income more aggressively. So the IMF is sort of saying um, that, you know, Eurozone firms have passed on this higher input cost to consumers. Now, you're saying that this is ultimately down to money supply, um, that that's the reason why we have um, this this higher inflation. It's not structurally, um, it's not a structural issue at all. And it's something that uh, can be addressed. You're absolutely right that I am not part of the consensus. Um, I am one of the relatively few people nowadays uh, who believes, and this is based on the evidence... Sound money. uh, ...believes that inflation is ultimately a monetary phenomenon. Mm. And Mm. writing and following Asian economies, writing about Asian economies and following them for 40 years as I did, uh, based here in Hong Kong... Uh, and else, and in Japan, um, that was very, very clear to me. Now, just like the laws of gravity don't change, the laws of economics don't change. And just because we have um, uh, an economics profession which doesn't believe or doesn't monitor money anymore, you know, it doesn't mean that the underlying drivers of inflation have changed. The drivers are still the same. Um, but you're right, people talk about all these other things which are alleged to have an influence on inflation, whether it's you know, energy prices or aging of the population or wage price spirals. or mm. you know, yeah, Those are all basically narratives. They are stories about what is going on currently. And what's happening is that people are elevating what is really a symptom from the transmission mechanism of faster or slower money growth. They're, tra- they're translating that or elevating that symptom into a cause. Mm. But those are not really causes at all. Mm. They are results of the prior rapid growth of money. 
Well, it's going to be very significant because if you're right, this is going to have a very significant impact on financial markets because ultimately it means interest rates have peaked, inflation is going to come down, uh, and interest rates are going to come down maybe much higher, uh, come down much lower than people are anticipating, and that terminal rate is going to be much lower as well. There's some very significant implications from this from for you if uh, you know by not being part of the consensus, but turning out to be right. Absolutely, but of course timing is critical. Um, so we have yet to go through that recession. It doesn't, you know, just because one can envisage this sort of outcome, it doesn't mean that it's all going to happen tomorrow. Let, let me ask you quickly before we finish about the mainland, because obviously the mainland economy is still growing, but it's it's disappointing people in yes. that it's not growing as fast uh, as people hoped when it when it came out of um, lockdown. Lots of people talking about stimulus, waiting for some sort of stimulus on the mainland. And we seem to be in this sort of um, what, what some people would call a balance sheet recession, where households and businesses now want to pay down debt, pay off their mortgage rather than consume or invest. What is the solution? to that? Well, let me describe the problem first. Uh, China has learned its lesson from the big stimulus that they implemented in 2008, 9 and 10, which although it was called a fiscal stimulus, you remember after the time of the Mm. GFC, Mm. 4 trillion yuan, uh, which at the time was about 6% of GDP. In fact, that was financed by the printing of money. Money growth went from 15% per annum to 30% per annum. That generated a doubling in the stock market, a huge increase in house prices. The economy strengthened. There was a worldwide commodity boom set off, and inflation went from negative to about 6 or 7%. So all the effects you would expect from faster money growth occurred. But then it also set off the surge in lending in the shadow banking business and the, the build-up of leverage. So China, I think, has well, I know, has learned its lesson. And so although there is talk about stimulus, I don't think they will want to repeat the mistake that they made then of doubling the rate of growth of money. That would be a, just another setback, and then they'd have to spend time to overcome that. So we're much more likely to see uh, careful structural measures uh, aimed at specific sectors Uh, rather than an across-the-board increase in credit or infrastructure spending. Uh, Curiously, China spent the rest of the decade after 2010 slowing money growth down, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, credit growth increased. Now, that's a very unusual combination. An increase in leverage at the same time that money growth was slowing and inflation was coming down. Uh, There are not many cases like that, uh, but uh, the U.S. in the 1920s is one example. They had very low growth uh, of money and very low inflation, but there was a leveraging up, which led to the 1929 uh, disaster in the stock market and then later the collapse uh, of the economy as money was uh, reduced even further. So I think that... uh, that there's some truth to the idea that China is in a balance sheet recession, as you mentioned, but the solution uh, is to uh, facilitate the deleveraging without increasing money. And again, there are there are ways to do that, but it would take too long to discuss now. <laughs> well, I'd love to talk more with you. Thank you very much. It's been very fascinating to hear your thoughts on this, and thank you for coming in.
That's Dr. John Greenwood, who is Chief Economist at International Monetary Monitor. Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news to go with this show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guest will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Michelle Lam, Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. We're also going to take a look at how Hong Kong's mandatory provident funds have performed in the first half of the year with Francis Chung, Executive Chairman of NPF Ratings. So please catch me tomorrow. Money Talk 